Chapter 8. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Continental Soldiers. The effect of the Battle of Bunker Hill was electric. Although General Joseph Warren had fallen just as the retreat was begun, not even the death of that beloved man could check the enthusiasm, for had not the British regulars been almost defeated? General Washington had set forth from Philadelphia for Cambridge June 21st, and attended on his way by a company of light horse, had been greeted with enthusiastic cheers and a warm welcome along the line of his march. It was four days after his departure from Philadelphia when he arrived at New York, and, although the new royal governor, Tryon, came there from England on the very same day, there was no doubt as to which was welcomed with the greater enthusiasm. News from the Battle of Bunker Hill was there received by Washington and his men, and added not a little to the spirits of the friends of the colonies. At New York, Washington held a conference with General Philip Schuyler, who was soon, as we shall learn, to take an active part in the struggle, and dismissing his body of light horse and attended by Charles Lee and his guard resumed his journey to Cambridge, where he arrived on the afternoon of July 2nd. At nine o'clock on the following morning, after the troops had been drawn up on the Cambridge Common, accompanied by several of his officers, Washington walked from his quarters, and taking his stand in front of the assembled ranks, spoke a few words, drew his sword, and formally assumed the command of the Continental Army amidst the greatest enthusiasm. It was a great day in the new commander's life, and in the life of America. At once Washington began the hard work that was to continue for many weary years. He called a council of war, and it was decided that the first task must be to organize the army, for up to this time the feeling of independence had extended even to the individual soldiers, who did not like to have their own liberties curtailed and by them obedience was a virtue yet to be learned. Indeed, though it seems hard to acknowledge it, drunkenness, thieving, and profanity were prevalent. This does not mean that every soldier was guilty of these crimes, but the vices were common and led Washington to issue the very day after he assumed the command the following general order. Quote, the Continental Congress, having now taken all the troops of several colonies which have been raised or may be raised hereafter for the support and defense of the liberties of America into their pay and service, they are now the troops of the United Provinces of North America, and it is hoped that all distinction of colonies will be laid aside, so that one and the same spirit may animate the whole, and the only contest be who shall render, on this great and trying occasion, the most essential service to the great and common cause in which we are all engaged. It is required and expected that exact discipline be observed, and due subordination prevail throughout the whole army, as a failure in these most essential points must necessarily produce extreme hazard, disorder, and confusion, and end in shameful disappointment and disgrace. The general most earnestly requires and expects a due observance of these articles of war, established for the government of the army, which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness. And in like manner, he requires and expects of all officers and soldiers not engaged on actual duty, a punctual attendance on divine service, to implore the blessings of heaven 
upon the means used for our safety and defense. Unquote. The very fact, however, that this model order was necessary may teach us after all that our own times are not worse than those which have preceded us, as some people are ever trying to have us believe. Naturally, Washington arranged the divisions of his army by colonies so that friends and neighbors might be kept together, and the jealousy felt by one colony for another, a source of constant trouble, might be guarded against as much as was possible. Altogether about 16,000 men were in the American army. What the life and duties of the soldiers were may perhaps be better understood by the following letter of William Emerson, a chaplain in the army at Cambridge, written not long after Washington assumed command of the forces. Quote, new lords, new laws. The generals, Washington and Lee, are upon the lines every day. New orders from His Excellency are read to the respective regiments every morning after prayers. The strictest government is taking place, and great distinction is made between officers and soldiers. Everyone is made to know his place and keep in it, or be tied up and receive thirty or forty lashes according to his crime. Thousands are at work every day from four till eleven o'clock in the morning. It is surprising how much work has been done. The lines are extended almost from Cambridge to the Mystic River so that very soon it will be morally impossible for the enemy to get between the works, except in one place, which is supposed to be left purposefully unfortified, to entice the enemy out of their fortress. Who would have thought, twelve months past, that all Cambridge and Charlestown would be covered over with American camps, and cut up into forts and entrenchments, and all the lands, fields, and orchards laid common? Horses and cattle feeding in the choicest mowing land, whole fields of corn eaten down to the ground, and large parks of well-regulated locusts cut down for firewood and other public uses. This, I must say, looks a little melancholy. My quarters are at the foot of the famous Prospect Hill, where such preparations are made for the reception of the enemy. It is very diverting to walk among the camps. They are as different in their form as the owners are in their dress, and every tent is a portraiture of the temper and taste of the persons who encamp in it. Some are made of boards and some of sailcloth some partly of one and partly of the other. Again, others are made of stone or turf, brick or brush. Some are thrown up in a hurry. Others are curiously wrought with doors and windows, done in wreaths and withes, in the manner of a basket. Some are your proper tents and marquees, looking like the regular camp of the enemy. In these are the Rhode Islanders, who are furnished with tent equipage and everything in the most exact English style. However, I think this great variety rather a beauty than a blemish in the army. Unquote. The bulk of the army at Cambridge had been made up of men from New England colonies, of whom naturally Massachusetts had provided the largest number. Others were hastening, however, to join the ranks. And in some of the colonies, notably Pennsylvania, so great was the enthusiasm that measures had to be taken to restrict the numbers. One of the colonial newspapers informs us of the unique method employed by one leader to enable him to select the best men without giving offense to those who might not be chosen. He took a piece of chalk and drew on a board the picture of a nose of ordinary size. Then he placed his drawing at a distance of 150 yards from the line and declared that those who could shoot nearest to the mark should be chosen to go to Cambridge with him. More than 60 hit the mark and the newspaper sagely concludes its description of the incident by remarking, quote, General Gage, take care of your nose, unquote. Daniel Morgan's riflemen, composed for the most part of pioneers from Virginia 
together with a few from Maryland and western Pennsylvania, were among the best of the recruits. Although the New England men were not as cordial in their welcome as they might have been owing to their prejudice against Irishmen, for the majority of this band were of Irish birth. They were famous for their skill with the rifle, and it is said that on the run through the forest they could load their guns and that every man was able to hit a running squirrel at a distance of 300 yards. The garb of these sharpshooters was also unique, and every one wore a loose hunting shirt, on the front of which were the well-known words of Patrick Henry, quote, liberty or death, unquote. The leader of this band, Daniel Morgan himself, was as unique as his men. Born in New Jersey, of Welsh descent, he was a giant in stature, and possessed of a physical strength almost beyond belief. At one time he had received five hundred lashes on the bare back by the order of a British officer, and at another he had escaped from the Indians after having been shot through the neck by a rifle ball. Among the leaders were also many men destined to become famous. There was Nathaniel Green, next to Washington, the ablest general of the Revolution, it is said that this young Rhode Island blacksmith, or iron worker, in spite of the fact that he was the son of a Quaker, had become so fond of the study of military science that he endured a sound whipping when he was a grown man at the hands of his irate and peaceful father, rather than abandon his pursuits. Young Green had left the friends at this time, however. But whether it was because of his fondness for the camps, or the influence of his sprightly little wife, Kate Littlefield Green, is not known. Then there was Benedict Arnold and John Hart and John Sullivan and Artemis Ward, Heath, Knox, and a host of men who little realized at the time the part they were to take in the history of a nation that was not yet born. Israel Putnam, who had left his plow for the camp, as we know, was also at Cambridge, and Old Putt was to prove himself worthy of his name. He had served throughout the French and Indian War and had been wounded fifteen different times. At one time the Indians had made him a prisoner, and after scalping him, had tied him to a tree and were about to put an end to his life with a tomahawk, when a French officer happening at the time to pass near the unfortunate man, quickly freed him, and thereby saved his life. Last and lowest of all was Charles Lee. Though next to Washington in his position, feared and looked up to by many of the Americans for the simple reason that he had fought in Europe, it would have saved Washington and the little nation many a hard blow if the ugly, smooth-tongued but treacherous and unreliable man had never crossed the sea to claim his estates in Virginia. But come he did, and of his treachery we shall soon learn. With these leaders and men differing in their opinions and training, enlisted for different terms of service, quartered by themselves and keeping alive not only a bitter feeling for England, but each a jealous love for his own colony, with no common country though they had a common cause, with flags of different kinds floating over the camps. The most common flag was known as the rattlesnake flag, from the fact that it had as a design a coiled rattlesnake in the words, quote, don't tread on me, unquote. The new commander was striving to hold the British in Boston as well as to bring his followers into some form of discipline and order. There was frequent firing between the lines and occasional minor skirmishes, but there was no serious engagement as the summer passed. The following extract from a letter from Cambridge, written for the New York Gazette at the close of July, will perhaps explain the character of the work and experience of the opposing armies. Quote, During a severe cannonade at Roxbury last week, a bomb 13 inches in diameter fell within the American lines and burnt furiously, when four of the artillerymen ran up and one kicked out the fuse, saved the bomb and probably some lives, 
a stroke of heroism worthy of record. The regulars have so hardened the provincials by their repeated firing that a cannonading is just as much minded as a common thunder shower. All things look well. The provincials are now as strongly posted as are the regulars. Neither side are willing to attack the other in their lines. Unquote. The monotony of camp life was to be rudely broken, however, and assuming the aggressive Americans were resolved to carry the war into the country of the enemy, and the desperately courageous but unsuccessful expedition led by Benedict Arnold against Quebec was soon undertaken. End of chapter 8